Let's return this morning to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. The hours leading up to and during the trials of Jesus, he was in contact with all kinds of people, from lowly peasants to the highest religious and civil authorities. And everyone he associated with that day had an opinion about him. Some had made up their minds that he was indeed the Christ, the Son of God. Some believed that he was a prophet, but perhaps not the Messiah. Others believed he was a false Christ who committed blasphemy and was deserving of death. Some were disappointed that he was not who they thought he should be, and others had not made up their minds. As we arrive at the scene of Jesus' trial before Pilate, he stands alone. Judas has betrayed him, Peter has denied him, and the other disciples have abandoned him. He now seems to be at the mercy of the Jewish high court and Pilate, who is the chief Roman official. But we know his fate is not really in their hands It's really been determined by the Godhead from eternity past. Jesus has struggled with his task in the garden. He submitted to the will of God, and now he faces the trial that will eventually condemn him to a cruel death. Now, in our narrative, we see more individuals and groups that convey various attitudes and motives in relationship to Jesus. The members of the Sanhedrin have been enemies of Jesus from the very beginning, and they're motivated by envy and hatred and that persistent unbelief in the face of his authority, his teaching, his miracles, and his healings. Now, Pilate has never met Jesus, and this trial is just kind of thrust upon him. He's unconvinced, however, of the charge of insurrection, but chooses to do what is expedient. He protects himself and prevents a riot for, uh, in, in offering up the Lord Jesus. Now, the crowd that day is stirred up by incensed rulers, and they choose someone to be released who is more in keeping with their perception of a Messiah, and they're controlled by their emotions who... Uh, actually become very close to being riotous. Then we find there's a person named Barabbas who really is a rebel, an insurrectionist. He's awaiting execution, and he merely takes advantage of a fortuitous opportunity of relief. And Jesus dies in his place, a perfect, sinless human for a convicted criminal deserving of death. So Barabbas is a picture of what Jesus has done for all of us. He's taken our punishment for sin upon himself. All of these people did something in relation to Jesus that day, and this raises a question that everyone really needs to answer, and that is, what will you do with Jesus? Let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful again for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who came into this world as a human being, 
and lived a perfect and sinless life, went to the cross of Calvary and there paid the penalty of our sins. And as we see this all developing in history, help us, Lord, today to realize that it is true, it's factual, and we need to make a decision about the Lord Jesus Christ today. Are we going to obey him? Are we going to look to him as our savior? Are we going to walk with him? Or are we going to be like those who condemned him on that day? So Lord, as we uh, see all the things working and developing, help us to have the right answer to the question of what we will do with Jesus. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want you to look at here again today is that fatal verdict rendered by the Sanhedrin, who were motivated by envy and hatred, and it eventually leads to the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 1, we're told immediately, so the, the, the process is moving forward quickly. They have already met, they've come together, perhaps not all of them, and as the evening goes by, it's certain that people are coming into this uh, crowded room, hearing these accusations, making decisions. And in the early morning, these chief priests hold a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. So Mark defines for us, as he goes through the narrative here, specific time frames of Christ's trial and crucifixion. It begins here early in the morning, uh, around the first hour of the day, which would be 6 a.m., and much is going to happen now between this time and the third hour, which will be 9 a.m., and then increments of every three hours as he goes through the story. Now, once charges against Jesus have been finally put together, the whole Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, meets together. They call this council. So now the whole council has gathered together, probably nearly every member of the Sanhedrin, and the word assembly, back in chapter 14, verse 15, is a different word, which indicates that perhaps not everybody was there when their uh, so-called trial was going on. And uh, uh, they held a consultation. Now that can mean two possible things. First of all, it could allude to a council meeting or gathering. It's formal, and they're coming together as a decision-making body. It also could mean formulating a plan, agreeing on charges and tactics that they would use to bring before the Roman authorities. Either of these fit the bill because they're deciding what to do in bringing a charge against the Lord Jesus before Rome, who has the power to put him to death. Now, the chief priests are mentioned first. They're in the emphatic position, so that means they're running the show. And as time moves forward, they're going to be like the uh, prosecutors in the case. And when things are in danger of not working out as they plan, then they'll enter the picture, they'll They'll uh, mingle with the crowd and stir them up to be sure that their plan works out. Now, the main charge has shifted from blasphemy to insurrection or rebellion. Jesus claimed uh, in the former 
trial of the Sanhedrin uh, to be one who was even greater than Messiah in the minds of the chief priests when he said he was going to come again and actually be in a position where he judges them. So in their minds, he's saying he is the king of Israel, and that's the charge they're going to bring before Rome, and it would have to be considered because this would involve sedition against Caesar, which held the death penalty. Now the priests, the elders, the scribes, they've been persistent in their unbelief concerning Jesus, and now they're willing to condemn an innocent man to death because they're jealous of his popularity and uh, his influence over the people. Pilate was astute enough to see that ruse because in verse 10, we're told that he knew the chief priest handed him over because of envy. He knew that they really weren't all that supportive of the Roman government, Uh, And he could observe their behavior and Christ's behavior and realize something's going on here because Jesus is composed, but they're, uh, they're irate, they're enraged, and the difference is very obvious. Furthermore, uh, in the discourses between Jesus and these people who came to him, Uh, from the Sanhedrin asking questions? Well, he humiliated them every time in his answers. So it's expedient for this group to get rid of Christ. And of course, little do they know that their evil plan is going to be used of God to bring about the greatest good in the world. So their agenda is now in place. They bind Jesus and they cart him off to Pilate who is the Roman governor. So let's take a look now at this figure, Pilate. And in Pilate, we see a great failure where expedience trumps justice. Now, Pilate uh, had been in charge for probably over five years at this point in time. We go back into history, we see he became the prefect or the governor of Judea around 26 AD. That would have been very close to the time that Jesus actually began his ministry, a little bit before. And he's directly accountable to Tiberius Caesar. His headquarters were located in Caesarea along the Mediterranean coast. But when the feast days were held in Jerusalem, he would travel there to make sure the peace was kept because there would always be the opportunity or the chance that some kind of uprising might take place. Philo, a Jewish historian, described Pilate in this way. He was naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness. So Pilate was not marked by diplomacy. He didn't seek to understand the culture and the religion of the people that he ruled over, and he tended to deal with problems by brute force. Luke records an incident in chapter 13 where Peter, or excuse me, where uh, Pilate mingled the blood of some Galileans with their sacrifices. So he went in there and just started uh, uh, swinging blades 
uh, at whatever issue was going on at that time. So here we have the story of a man who is convicted by conscience, but marred by expediency. Now, as Jesus comes to him, Mark is, is very concise in what he writes. He leaves a lot of information out. And they come, they present this charge, uh, which is a charge that he claims to be king of the Jews. So Pilate very bluntly asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, well, this is the first time that Mark uses that title for the Lord Jesus. But in this chapter, you'll find that it really becomes kind of a focal point because it's mentioned six times. Is Jesus the king of the Jews or is he not? And of course, Christ's interpretation of that is totally different than everybody else's. Now, Pilate would not have been concerned about the charge of blasphemy that we looked at last time or other religious-related issues. Uh, that's why the chief priests kind of tweak this to a charge that Jesus claims to be a king, and someone who makes a charge of uh, uh, a claim of being a king over a providence in uh, in Roman authority would have to be dealt with. And Pilate is obligated to, to to get to the root of the matter here. Now, all the while, Jesus refuses to defend himself. He doesn't really give a clear answer. You'll find in your Bible that he says simply, you say, or it is as you say, but literally, you say. So if somebody said that to you in response to this question, how would you take it? Well, okay, he's saying I said this, but does that answer the question? Is it a yes? Is it a no? Jesus is purposely ambiguous here, not really saying it either way, not denying it, uh, but again, not directly claiming that that is the case. So this kind of uh, uh, leaves it open for Pilate to further question him. Mark does not cover that in his story, in his narrative. John the Apostle does. Now, this title is a Christological title. It is associated with the Messiah, but it's not an insurrectionist title because when Pilate speaks further to Jesus in private, Jesus makes it clear that his kingdom is not of this world. You remember that conversation. So after that discussion, Pilate comes back out to the court and he tells the Jews, I find no fault in this man. So what do they do? Well, in verse 3, the chief priests accuse him of many things. So they just start flinging out all these accusations that we don't have recorded here, but some of which went through the process when they met with the Sanhedrin. And Luke mentions a couple of these, but again, they, they're inconsequential. The main thing is, is Jesus the king of the Jews? So they're starting to get really worked up about this because it's not going the way they want it to, so they're flinging out more accusations about the Lord Jesus. But the amazing thing again is, in verse um, 3, he answered nothing. 
In other words, Jesus would not defend himself. So Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See all these uh, things, they testify against you. Now, Pilate was a judge that met on these occasions many, many times. And I'm sure that as people stood before him accused of things, he was hearing all kinds of remonstrances of their innocence and crying out these things, and here's somebody who doesn't say one word in their defense. So he's awed, he's amazed, he's marveled that Jesus can stand there, hear all these things against him, and not defend himself. Now, of course, we know Jesus could have answered. He would have answered very convincingly, and he would have proved his innocence by an argument. But could he do that and accomplish his mission? No, he couldn't. So he has to allow the process to go on. He cannot defend himself. He's got to let the trial uh, uh, charge him guilty so that he can go to the cross on our behalf. Now, all the while this is going on, as we mentioned, Pilate observes the two parties. He observes the composure of Jesus, the fortitude of not answering these false charges, which Pilate doesn't know if they're true or false. And then he sees the priests, who are supposed to be these holy men of their God, they're all upset, they're irate, they're probably screaming this stuff out, and he knows something's not right, so he's reticent about condemning Jesus. Now again, we need to bring the whole story together so we understand what's going on. Pilate, from this point, does his best to extricate himself from this situation. Matthew tells us that he later found out that Jesus was a Galilean. Now, Herod Antipas was the governor or ruler of that region of Judea, and he's in town for the feast. So Pilate uh, perhaps wants to pawn off this judgment to Herod, and he sends Jesus to Herod's palace. But Herod listens to him, and again, Jesus says nothing. So they mock him, they make fun of him, but Herod can't find anything to charge him with either, so he sends him back, and that plan caves in. Nothing happens. Well, Pilate then introduces the prisoner exchange, which we'll look at in just a moment, and we'll find that that doesn't work out too well either. Then things begin to get out of hand with the crowd as they're crying out for Jesus, the so-called king of uh, the Jews, to be crucified, and they're almost in a frenzy, and Pilate finally caves to their demand in verse 15. So Pilate wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas. And the word gratify there means he wanted to appease them. He wanted to satisfy them. He wanted to calm them down. And so he does what they want. All this time, he's afraid of what will happen if things get out of control. There's a riot on his hands. Somebody could report him to the authorities He's already been rebuked by Tiberius Caesar, so he's got a lot to lose if this doesn't work out for him personally. 
He could lose his position. He could be demoted. He could be ruined because of his poor um, rule over Judea. So he caves in to the crowd. But he still makes one more attempt at appeasing them shy of crucifixion. You'll notice here in verse 15 uh, that he scourged him. All right, so he scourged him before the crucifixion. That's what would happen. Somebody was uh, condemned to death. They were going to be executed. They would first be whipped. And most of you know what that entailed. The Roman uh, flagellum was a leather whip embedded with pieces of bone and metal. And that could literally tear you to pieces. Some even died before the crucifixion because that was such a severe punishment. But after Jesus survived that, showing his own physical strength, uh, he, he brought them before the people. He pronounced to them, this is the man, hoping that that would be enough to appease them and he wouldn't be crucified. But they kept crying out, crucify, crucify. Finally, Matthew says, Pilate uh, took a bowl of water, a towel to wash his hands, and he said, I'm innocent of guilty blood, of, the, of, of the, uh, this man's blood. Sorry, but he wasn't. But that's how he appeased his own conscience. So there's a lot of people today like Pilate. They think Jesus was a good man. He was unfairly and brutally treated, but they don't seriously see, uh, consider who he is, what he's done for them, and their life and their agenda are far too important to think about the truth and act upon it. Now that brings us to this third person. And here we find the good fortune of a rebel in verses 6 to 9. In verse 6, we are informed of some type of a custom where a prisoner could be released during this particular feast. We don't know where that custom came from. It's not really alluded to outside of the Bible, but apparently uh, Pilate had been involved in it, maybe to create a little bit of a better atmosphere between himself and the Jewish people. Uh, but when they come to him in verse 8, they're asking him to do as he had always done for them. So he's done this before. And now they're coming and they want him to do it again. So this would be a, uh, it's not at first a prisoner exchange, but they want a particular man uh, released. Now, this person is Barabbas. And Barabbas uh, was a notorious prisoner, currently under arrest, uh, arrest for rebellion, insurrection, and about to be executed. And in this uprising that he was involved in and maybe was even the leader of, people had been killed. And it's likely that the three crosses at Golgotha were originally intended for Barabbas and the two robbers that were crucified with Jesus. 
So the people come to Pilate and they ask for his release, but he gave them a choice between a known criminal and Jesus whom in whom he had found no fault. Now probably he thought, well, obviously they're going to choose Jesus. But to some of them, Barabbas must have been viewed as a hero fighting against Rome. They hated that Roman authority. The zealots wanted to get rid of it. And there had been uprisings way back since about the, the, uh, the, the sixth year of uh, uh, Anno Domino. And the plan begins to backfire. Now let's consider some contrast between Jesus and Barabbas. First of all, there's a similarity of names that doesn't surface for us very clearly. Barabbas is not a first name. It's a name used to distinguish you from another person with your first name. For instance, Simon, son of Jonah, instead of Simon, son of somebody else. So Barabbas means son of the father. Another interesting point. One Greek text type, which is likely correct, calls this man Barabbas, Jesus, Barabbas. Jesus, son of the father, versus Jesus, the son of God. Did that name have perhaps a messianic undertone to some people? Jesus, son of the father. And so when they cried out, release to us Jesus, maybe Pilate thought, oh, you mean Jesus, the king of the Jews? Of course, he was mistaken. But then we can understand why he said, who do you want, Jesus, son of the Father, or Jesus, the king of the Jews? And obviously, they had come to ask for Jesus Barabbas to be released to them, not this other fellow, Jesus, supposed king of the Jews. And when Silas used that title, he was not serious. He was probably kind of being sarcastic. So either way, Barabbas, a rebel leader uh, who gathered a following against the Roman authority who was on death row, is the one who's going to be exchanged for Jesus. So as we go through here, we see that Barabbas was clearly a sinner. He was a robber. That word eventually came to, to be used of a person who was a rebel. And of course, rebels, to supply their cause, would rob people. Also, he was a murderer. Matthew calls him that in his gospel. And in one of those raids, people got killed. Maybe he was one who, who was guilty of that. And if a Roman citizen was hurt, then the result would be the death penalty by crucifixion. Now, in contrast, the charges brought against Jesus were not true. He was not an insurrectionist. And the meaning of king of the Jews would be different in Christ's mind than that of Pilate's. And the only way he could be condemned would be by false accusation and the determination of evil men and their failure to act in righteousness. 
Now, as a result of his sins, Barabbas was deserving of death. And as we mentioned, it's likely that the means of death was already prepared outside the city, uh, waiting for the final trial, and crucifixion was reserved for criminals like him, and it was really the worst, uh, the worst way for you to go. There couldn't be a, a, a more cruel, painful way to die than by crucifixion. Now, Jesus was not deserving of death, yet he died in the place of Barabbas. The innocent died for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the sinless one for the sinner. So the uh, theological implications of this are really clear to us today, aren't they? Barabbas represents every guilty human being. All of us are sinners. All of us are deserving of eternal death. But Jesus paid the price for us when he went to the cross, just like he did Barabbas. So here we have the story of a man convicted by Uh, 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 of sin by the law, worthy of death, but he's released through the exchange of his life for Christ, who is perfectly sinless. So it's a picture of what Jesus did to redeem our souls. Now that leads us then to the last group here, and that is the crowd. And we see in the crowd their failed expectations, their mixed-up folly, their misperception of who Jesus was all about. Now, we sometimes think of this crowd as being fickle, don't we? Okay, a few days ago, uh, Jesus came into the city. Everybody's crying out hallelujah uh, and, and calling, uh, calling him uh, the Messiah, But on Friday, they're all crying out for his blood. Now, folks, that's what I used to think. But when you think about it, is that really the case? Because the crowd who accompanied Jesus up to the city of Jerusalem were his Galilean followers. They all were praising him. There's another crowd inside of Jerusalem who really kind of haven't made up their minds yet at all. They've only heard Jesus maybe a few times. Jesus was in Galilee for a lengthy period of time doing all of his work there. So I tend to think that the crowd inside that day was not the same crowd outside a few days earlier. Now, the inhabitants of Jerusalem during this week heard Jesus teaching in the temple They were probably happy to see these religious snobs put in their place. Um, They were not openly opposing him. They were listening to him. They were giving him the opportunity to teach them. They were awed like many were. But when decision time came, this particular crowd cried out for his blood. Whoever was there that morning, and again, it wouldn't have been the whole city, but it would have been a sizable group. And it's likely that the people who came to Pilate and wanted a prisoner released to them, they wanted Barabbas released. They were supporting Barabbas. Why? Well, compared to Jesus, he's a man of action. He's trying to free the nation from this Roman authority that we hate so much. Jesus, he's he's this weak guy, this meek fellow, and whenever somebody tried to make him king or suggest it, he just disappeared. 
And then when they saw Jesus standing there before Pilate, beaten and whipped to a pulp by Roman authorities, who would you have chosen? And so they made the obvious human choice. Barabbas is in a lot better shape than Jesus. We're going to pick him. Well, <clears throat> the priests were only too happy to assist them in this choice because they were, they were thinking, well, Pilate's trying to get out of this. I don't know if I mentioned, but Pilate will say five times, I find no fault in this man. So they're thinking, oh, he's not going to go the way we want to. So when the, the crowd uh, uh, starts thinking about the choice, they get into the crowd. They start whipping them up and saying, crucify, crucify, we don't want this man. And they follow form. So again, the priests uh, get their uh, little play in that. We know how that happens. You get a few people in a crowd and they start uh, uh, uh uh, raising their voices and chanting this or that and the other thing. Pretty soon the whole crowd is involved emotionally. Their brains are in, uh, not intact. And they're all crying out for Jesus' blood. And all of it was due to their misperception about who Jesus was and why he came. And they didn't understand what being king of the Jews meant when Jesus came the first time. He didn't come to be served like a king. He didn't come to raise up an army and lead a rebellion so he could rule Israel. He came to ransom and redeem those who were lost in sin. And they didn't get it. So what did all these people do with Jesus? Well, each individual, each group made some kind of a decision. They all had varying degrees of knowledge about Jesus, and they acted upon that. The members of the Sanhedrin were most culpable because they were aware of what Jesus taught and the works that he did, yet they outright rejected him and were responsible for bringing him before Pilate and making sure that the correct, in their mind, the correct judgment was made. Pilate knew very little about Jesus but he was still responsible for his decision. His position was one where justice must be wrought. He knew the Lord was innocent, but he handed him over to crucifixion anyways. He pleased the crowd, unwilling to risk his own skin for the outcome of doing the right thing. The people in the crowd, again, have the wrong perception about what the Messiah ought to be and what the Messiah should do. So they rejected the person they perceived as being weak and powerless, not realizing he was, uh, he was full of uh, fortitude and courage as he faced his accusers and all the abuses that he was uh, taking on himself. So all of these actors made decisions about Jesus on the information afforded them, and they'd be held accountable for their choices. Barabbas, well, um, he went the way of expediency too. I'm not going to die if I don't have to. So he didn't say no. He said, oh, that's okay. I'll, I'll go ahead and get crucified. Let Jesus go. No, he was going to take advantage of that as well. 
So they all are responsible for the decisions that they make, what they did with Jesus. Now we know in the word of God that all of this had to happen if Jesus, a perfect man, not just an innocent one, but a perfectly sinless one, would have to die in this means. God orchestrated this behind the scenes, and it's a picture of God's plan of substitutionary sacrifice for us. Now, I don't know what Barabbas thought that day. I don't know if when he was released, he continued in his sinful ways of rebellion, or perhaps he ended up believing in Jesus. We don't know. But I do know that Jesus died for sinners like him and like me and like you. The righteous one took the place of the guilty. The sinless one took the place of the sinner, the just for the unjust. So what will you do with Jesus is all important. Will you believe in what he did to save you? Or will you believe like the chief priest did who hated him, like Pilate did who condemned him, and like the crowd who totally misjudged and misunderstood him? We all have to make a decision. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning for your grace to be upon us. And we are thankful, Lord, that Most of us here today have made a decision about Jesus and we've trusted him as Savior. There may be somebody who hasn't done that. Maybe they haven't been aware of these things. And we just pray, Lord, you impress upon our hearts that we must make a decision, first of all, to trust Jesus as our Savior and then to faithfully follow him. So, Lord, work in our hearts today and help us to be unlike those present at his trial, and uh, be those who will trust him fully and completely with salvation and sanctification. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.